Welcome to the first edition of Poppies from a Tray. What once was a book, now resurrected as a podcast, thanks to absolutely no popular demand. Over the next couple of months, we'll bring you the first series of interviews from a string of intriguing and enthralling musicians. But why spoil the elements of surprise by telling you who they are so early in the game? Our first victim is Steve Hackett, legend of prog, guitarist extraordinaire, still cooking on gas after 50 years in the music business. In this interview, I wanted to find out where his calling came from, but from there, we covered a few more bases, from Hank and the Shads, through a dalliance with gymnastics, a band called Genesis, and beyond. Hope you enjoy it. I was always interested in music as I, when I was a kid. Um, from a very early age, I had a father who played a number of instruments, um, mainly harmonica around the home, and I picked it up. I started trying to copy him from the age of two. I was trying to um, do what he did on the, uh, on the thing. So um, at the age of two, I was trying to isolate notes on the on on the thing, and um, so music was always really there. You know, it, it was um, um, not really something I thought about consciously. I just always loved it, and um, to a two-year-old, a profession seems incomprehensible, doesn't it? <laughs> so um, luckily. Um, I was eventually able to make it my profession. Um, I was okay academically. I got myself a scholarship, you know, past 11 plus. But although a lot of my friends left school at 15 to go out into the world of work, I, I, I got a few O-levels. It's old speak now, isn't it? O-levels. <laughs> and um, But I... I I knew that I didn't want an academic career. It was all getting in the way of the music. Uh, when I was at school, and indeed the early jobs that I did um, for the first four or five years after I left school, uh, the real work started for me once I got home and I was able to pick up the guitar and the harmonica and um, sometimes used to write little short stories as well as things that eventually became lyrics. So. I think. When I was about 12, I got interested in... Um, 11 and 12, I think. I got interested in gymnastics, and, and at that time, I, I had some wild idea that I was going to be a professional gymnast. And uh, I was in the school gymnastics team. I, I, was, I was fanatical about it. Um, but then music really took over suddenly all the gymnastics were of the fingers and less of the body but there's something in in, in uh, the release of energy that, mm. that accompanies the two that i think um bear some kind of uh, relation uh, to each other um i think a lot of players if they reach a certain degree of proficiency can fall into the trap of treating music like sport, trying to play as fast as possible all the time. Mm. It's a good facility to have to be able to play fast occasionally, but um, I'd really have an, rather have an occasional burst of that than I mm. would somebody proving that they can play all night long. So I think a lot can be done with pretty uh, simple skills I'm not sure that having a massively great 
virtuoso technique helps you to write a song. I think it can often get in the way. It can be an encumbrance. I think writing a simple song comes from another place that's not not technique based. Um, luckily, I was a fan of, of of lots of lots of other people in different fields. Who um, some of them were were in, were in pop, some in rock. Blues certainly, uh, and baroque, classical, certainly. Um, I grew up listening to a mixture of um, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Chuck Berry, George Formby, J.S. Bach. Lots of of, of influences. Um, but having played the harmonica since I was about three or four, I, w- I was doing tunes on on the thing. I know it starts very young, this copying your dad thing. Um, I think if my dad had been a carpenter, I probably would have been trying to saw up planks of wood. But, you know, music was was very important to me, Uh, particularly guitar music. I became intrigued um, by the sound of the guitar. I was excited by it. Um, First record I bought was a Shadows single. The single was called uh, Man of Mystery. Um, and um, I still think it's a very good melody, even now. Something very, very clever about it. Um, but I, I became interested in classical music at the same time. Um, so the first single I bought was the, the Shadows. The first LP I bought was Ravel's Bolero, because I was entranced by, by that. Um, I thought it was a wonderful, a wonderful melody, and um, I loved the idea that it got louder and louder, and uh, um, as the arrangement continued, um, as a young kid, as a, as a as a twelve year old, I used to fantasize about um, Cleopatra's barge coming closer and closer, um, populated by scantily clad uh, handmaidens dancing in a slow motion manner so in a way I think that piece was like a cross between the dance of the veils and and a march through time it was militaristic as well so it had this powerful combination this irresistible rhythm and um, dissonant chords and I still marvel at it and uh, Wish I'd written it myself. Like so many great pieces of music that I wish I'd written. I wish I'd written about 50% of the Beatles catalogue. But I have to content myself with the fact that I've written 50% of the Genesis catalogue. I've written and co-written 50% with with the others of of, of, uh, the the Genesis stuff. So it's not bad going. I mean, that was, I suppose, a a trademark of... Of bands like Genesis, bands like Yes, there was that. There was the acoustic element and the electric element yeah. and the very cinematic kind of a thing. Yeah, I, I think what characterised the approach of both bands is the fact that um, there was a nod to classical music, there was a nod to jazz, there was um, there was an intention to cross over before the term was in common parlance. Chris Squire, who I worked with recently on several projects. Um, he was a choir boy, 
um, who retained the friendship of another guy who ended up arranging things on Chris's solo album, A Fish Out of Water, and, and the arrangements on it are, are wonderful. So um, Chris was quite f- familiar with the work of Hubert Parry and um, and all the rest. So I think that, that kind of choral approach that, um, yes, used so much with their harmonies, um, they were very much a three-part harmony uh, band. I think that was part part of the appeal there. And, and Genesis too, I think, you know, Phil Collins, of course, had a love of um, big band, which is well known. The rest of us shared a love of classical music, and um, I think we were influenced by everything from blues to pantomime to humour. The number of things that might be outside the progressive area. People think of progressive as characterised by Hammond organ, Mellotron, tricky time signatures, everything impenetrable, a bit like a mathematical task. I think in actuality that was part of what intrigued us, but the power of a good a good song and a good lyric, a good a good line, a good riff, a good hook, something that refuses to go away, is what drives a song forward. I, mean, I find that throughout the course of a day, I write down lots of little ideas. They're normally only a line, and each of them could come from a potential song, but there will only be a few of those out of the thousands that I write down that'll really stand out to me as being genuinely characterful and worth pursuing because I've got books filled with this stuff. It's most annoying that, you know, when you're doing stuff on the road, if you're travelling and doing shows, you can't really be fully creative. Um, that has to happen some other time. So lots of ideas come along when there's no instrument there and I, I, I write them down in preference to anything else. The, the, the post-Genesis career, it's been very much... There's been the electric band, there's been the, the, the classical yeah, acoustic. Stuff, I mean, yeah. it, when you're doing an acoustic record, you find you listen to that sort of stuff for inspiration, or, or because you're working on that, mm. you go away and listen to something completely different. Uh, yeah, I, I find myself um, in, in the morning, when you've got a moment to go down and have breakfast, um, it's usually something by a classical person to ease the day in. Or, funnily enough, something bright and sunny and Californian with those well-known Californian harmonies. Um, they're the things I tend to listen to um, first in the day. And, that, and then, of course, there's a certain amount of checking other people out and, and um, records that people give me, uh, often when I'm on tour. And people send things all the time to say what I think. I've come to the conclusion that most people improve immensely with praise rather than criticism. I think praise from someone that you respect can work miracles. Um, I've had my heroes, and um, if occasionally they've said nice things about stuff I've done, oh, I've taken literally, my God, yes, wow, you know. (gasps) Wonderful, praise from Caesar is um, invaluable. I don't bother to say, oh, I think, you know, I think we should give that up, mate, for a bad job. I just say, you know, um, yeah, well done. And invariably, people tend to um, come up with something better next time. Sometimes people make a quantum leap. I've seen it happen with two very young musicians who suddenly their technique in six months, talking about 
one kid who wasn't even in his teens at this point, you know, a nine-year-old boy who was trying to play my stuff, and um, uh, well, it turned out to be absolutely brilliant. Another, I was a friend of the family, and um, he, um, six months later, we, we were going to play something uh, together at a public function. He just turned out to be absolutely brilliant. You know, I told him he was good, and... And he was at that time, but he, he more than rose to the challenge of the idea. He's obviously been working flat out on this to, to um, you know, attain this, this level and this technique, which was, it was just wonderful. Do you, do you kind of think of yourself as being part of that continuum? I mean, you know, you, you've spoken about the things that you listened to as a kid, and I remember John yeah. Lennon saying yeah. nice things about selling England yes. at one point, mm. and now, you know, you're kind of... Mm. At the other end of that, that maybe spectrum. I am. Yeah, I often have to remind myself that John Lennon isn't there, and um, there is no doubt about it that John Lennon wrote extraordinary songs uh, for a man who was self-taught, and perhaps the Beatles taught each other, and perhaps an influence from George Martin was no no bad thing. I guess I am at the other end of it. Now Now people come to me as a, oh, you must know what you're doing, you're a man of experience. But I think the funny thing is, um, when you're in the midst of it, you're always dealing with the same issues. All musicians are trying to deal with the same issues. They're all trying to play better, write a better tune, try and perfect the art, hope to do a gig where you make absolutely no howlers. But there's going to be moments when you're human and you're going to fall. You're going to fall off the tightrope of the high wire act that is guitar playing, particularly nylon guitar playing. Uh, there's no point giving yourself a hard time just because you've made a mistake. The important thing is uh, recovery and being able to, to carry on. Um, uh, Ian McDonald was very encouraging to me in my early days, uh, just a year or so before I met Genesis. I'd seen Ian with King Crimson and he was a multi-instrumentalist at that time and um, they were a band that seemed to play and sing flawlessly as far as I was concerned. I was mightily impressed. He happened to have been at school, sorry, in the army um, with a friend of mine, Phil Hennison, who was with a band called Quiet World band I joined before, before Genesis, a uh, year before. He came to a rehearsal one day and uh, very, very helpful, tried to put us in touch with uh, management, e.g. management, came to one of the recording sessions, told me he liked my guitar playing. Well, you know, of course I was, I was in heaven. Um, he liked my guitar playing. You know, the gods have come down from Olympus. Yeah, and, and John Lennon, I think, uh, Peter Gabriel was very excited about the fact that he just heard that, that Lennon had, had given us the thumbs up on, I think it was WNEW, probably interviewed by Scott Muni in, in New York. And this was when we were in New York, uh, unable to get a gig in the rest of the States at that point. He said we were one of the bands he was listening to selling them by the pound. So we just had that album out at that time and um, well I took it quite literally you know I mean he may have just been thinking oh perhaps I better say nice about some contemporary band I've just heard about but I thought oh you know Lennon likes what what we do that's good 
I don't think we capitalised on it enough at the time. We should have had press handouts reminding all the Americans and folks at home that here we are, you know, we'd, we'd, um, we'd arrived. Yeah, but it took a lot longer in those days. You didn't have Twitter, you didn't have Facebook, you didn't have um, uh, websites. So news travelled at the speed of the telephone, word of mouth, slow growth for Genesis, college radio probably was the thing that broke the band in the early days uh, in America, long before MTV. Things worked at a dis different speed, but um, it probably helped the band not to get too big-headed too quickly. Uh, made us try harder, probably. Just how much influence did America have on you being over there? And obviously you played some, some pretty lengthy tours over there, didn't you? Of course, we'd all grown up listening to American music. Impossible to avoid. Uh, but when we were listening to American music in America and we were listening to uh, the things that were being played on American FM, I think in the main, we didn't respond hugely to it because at the time, Genesis seemed to have a bit of a downer on blues and much of what was presented in America was rock that had been blues derivative and maybe because there'd been that kind of snobbery with the band um i often wondered why people did bluesy guitar solos but you see this is because i'd grown up listening to blues because the sonic developments in uh, the sound of the electric electric guitar all happened within a blues format um it seemed to be the british bands that were doing it it was whatever band Eric Clapton was playing in, Jeff Beck, somewhere between the Yardbirds and, and, um, and John Mayle um, and Cream, the developments in the British blues scene set the tone and the standard for British guitar playing and, um, and that was wonderful. Uh, but by the time um, I met Genesis, um, it seemed as if the band frowned on uh, on blues, saw it as overly simplistic and um, they didn't want to sound anything like Deep Purple. Whereas I suspect I would have been happy to sound um, either like Deep Purple or Procol Harum. I, I, I didn't have any prejudice. But I think essentially Genesis was very um, European sounding. Yeah, there's an American influence, of course, of... of you know, rock drums and the beat and the sound of, of, of the voice and very often the accent. But um, there was something very British that the band had. And I think it's Englishness um, and the very naming of the album Selling England by the Pound had a lot to do with selling the idea to the, to the Americans. So it appealed directly to the Anglophile market over there. And the Brits did hold sway for quite some time, um, I think in the wake of the Beatles. In many ways, I think so many bands managed to get through the door, hanging on to the coattails of the Beatles, who were a huge, a huge force. And not just because, you know, they were um, our elected fashion leaders and um, older brothers, but because I think that they genuinely improved their songwriting craft to expand the textures to involve classical instruments, orchestras, 
uh, to kick off world music, to invite Indian musicians to take part. Um, um, suddenly, I think there was a great fusing of, 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 of cultures that came came together under the banner of, of the Beatles. And um, I know I used this word prejudice earlier. The wall started to come down then. We were heading towards one world at that point. Uh, and luckily that's that's continued and there are still things to discover from various regions. Um, there are some very exciting musicians out there if you can if you can find them. Yes, you're not going to see it on, on the latest video, on the latest pop channel. It is a journey. You're going to have to do your gypsy best to, to, um, to unearth it wherever it happens to be happening. But it is happening out there. It's not all happening in this country, in America anymore. Music isn't like that anymore. I mean, thank God in a way, it, it, because um, we, we were lucky to be able to lead for a while, to have the world's ear. But, you know, we have to earn that right every every year over here. Yeah, we, we have some exciting new bands, but the 60s explosion um, seems to be a time that people were looking outside of themselves and their immediate backgrounds, I think, and their, and their influences and taking on board other ideas. I'm, I'm Again, I, I keep coming back to the Beatles and, and specifically to Eleanor Rigby, four young guys writing about the plight of an elderly woman shortly to meet her demise within the two minutes of hearing the song, bringing out the old instruments, downing their own instruments, almost out of reverence and um, for the character. So much so that you feel you can smell the dust on those old instruments. And for me, it's, 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 it's a character sketch, but it becomes a full-blown portrait um, within those two minutes that that song lasts. And, and that's the challenge for any contemporary writer in any field, can you engage by those little snippets, those vignettes, those little moments in her life that that we get to follow. Play um, on the Rooftops always used to put me in mind of that. Really? That same well, kind of... That's interesting, yeah. Blood on the Rooftops, lyrically, um, I was trying to write something that there was no action. In other words, it's channel surfing. The action is happening all around you. There's political apathy. There's there's an avoidance of life going on. It's it's the man who's lived through the war, saying to his son, "I don't want to know. All I want is fantasy." It's in in a sense, it's it's that. When I was writing the lyric to that, I didn't really know what I was writing about. All I knew was that I wanted various levels of action to happen from from the TV. The TV was going to be the frame of, of the song. Nothing happens. But, you know, I've seen within my lifetime both my grandmother, father's mother, and my father, you know, reach old age and um, a sense of them being an appendage to, to, to their TV. It, it shocked me, in a way, that, that, that my grandmother was prepared to watch anything on TV um, rather than engage with things with their own life. But, you know, of course, and now I look back on it, I would say, um, of course, she'd had, she'd had four children, survived a world war or two. Why shouldn't she, you know, earn the right to sit there and watch Coronation Street and all the rest? 
but I could never quite work out why why the box was more interesting than than people why why life wasn't quite fully interactive and that there was a an acceptance a sort of resignation I felt there was a sense of danger I, I was very very worried about that and I think maybe that message is is still current because I I, I do realize that um, many children don't really um, go out and play perhaps much as as much as they they, they, they should do and uh, and relate to each other perhaps and the idea of the digital domain taking over is pretty worrying you know that, that, that there's less integration going on than than um, there was at one time so yeah so maybe the songs um, of of relevance still Puppies from a Tray will return in a couple of weeks from wherever you get your podcast action you can follow us on Twitter at From Tray we're not going anywhere but at least following won't tie you out written and produced by Dave Bowler intro music by Stan Saltzman and Big Band from Live at the Spotted Dog courtesy of Stony Lane Records copyright Museum 2019